Welcome to Herp Talk Radio. I'm your host, Matthew, and my co-host is Peggy Detmer. Coming to you live from the Black Hills. So, Peggy, how are the Talk turtles? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I'm having the issues of having to separate the ones who want to be cannibals from the smaller ones still. And uh, had to pry two apart, one biting the other one on the neck. And it's, you know, even though I'm feeding them, like I said before, till they're fat and sassy, it's, uh, I need to, I'm hoping for warmer weather so we can let all these re rescue turtles go. <laughs> the Fair bigger enough. they get, the less they're tolerating their neighbor. <laughs> it sounds like turtles making some turtle stew. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, scheduled with the South Dakota Game Fishing Parks to make a public relations video of the release of these rescue turtles. So, I can't eat them. <laughs> well, no, I mean, they're eating yeah, each they're... other. Turtles are eating each oh, other. Oh, 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 here in South Dakota, we, we eat about everything. So. <laughs> Cannibal turtles. Um, <laughs> were they teenagers? Like, are they teenage? Like, no, are they turtles? They were eggs. <laughs> they, they were I was eggs. Say. Yeah, they were eggs that I rescued. Um, uh, let's see. Well, the, the first egg rescue came from a, a teacher who found the dead female with, um, and she said all the eggs outside the female were squashed, but she saved the carcass. So I went and picked it up off of her porch and I opened up the carcass and there were three viable eggs in there. I thought one was showed that it had been cracked in the incubator, but two hatched. That was the first rescue. And then the second was a female that I was just going to help across the road. And I looked her over and she had really bad shell rot. And so I got, you know, I've never dealt with this. So I brought it to the vet and I said, you know, in case any of these, um, my own turtles or any rescue turtles have this condition, how do I treat it now? What's, what's the secret now? And so he gave me a two step, um, process, um, mostly involving a silver solution to clean it and then, uh, dry it and then a silver salve to keep the water away and had to treat her for three weeks and then everything I was cleaning up. I couldn't believe how fast um, the keratin uh, came over her, um, the, the rot and uh, she looked really good. And, and while in my care, she laid uh, 11 eggs and um, seven were viable that, you know, that hatched. And so I have nine babies to release. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and some grow faster than others. And those ones that were getting bigger started, you know, biting the smaller ones. So I had to separate them. And, and, and I, 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 I'm saying I'm over turtled, I'm over tanked. <laughs> and, and I mean, cause I never had to rescue and raise so many youngsters. I don't breed. I just had my, my pet, you know, three in, in the bedroom tank and three in the living room tank. And that was it. And then all of a sudden, you know, like, well, you're a turtle person here. Help me with this rescue. Help me with that rescue. And so I've got uh, a lot on my hands. But but how about you there, Matthew? What's uh, what's going on in your snake world? Well, not snake related, but uh, this week we're, we just randomly decided we're going to go uh, to Missouri. So we'll be gone this week and uh, back next Monday to record and oh. yeah so that's that's interesting <laughs> twyla posted up a uh a candy cane corn 
and that thing was gorgeous so much so that it might end up here um <laughs> other yeah, than that not not really anything my my rat colony is starting to produce finally again well more anyway um mm -hmm. yeah <clears throat> vacation that'll be fun <laughs> Oh, that would be, that would be. I was <laughs> and, hoping and we could do Texas so we could find some, like, rattlesnakes or do some, do some herping or something, but I think it's going to be a little too cold in Missouri. It's going to be, like, 50, so. Oh, there's still ways you can go herping, but you're not going to probably find as many snakes. You'd find more of, like, what I like. Yeah, the frogs. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, and that's our guest. Go Prince for it, Peggy. Uh... On the <laughs> <laughs> and our guest tonight is Aaron Cuparelli. Is that right again, Aaron? No, name? that's all right, though. You know, you did better than a lot of the telemarketers. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I want to say your name, please. <laughs> My name's Aaron Capulli. 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 Yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm, I've got Italian food on my brain. <laughs> oh, that's all right. <laughs> So, um, Aaron, you're really into the amphibians. I've been watching your YouTube channel, and there's a, a lot of questions that I have um, for you. But first, um, start telling us about your background. You know, when did you start collecting, uh, and what interest, what uh, uh, drove you, uh, drove you into the frogs and the salamanders and things. Well, while well, we're going to be here for a long conversation, I can see, but <laughs> no, in reality, yeah. <laughs> my name's Aaron Capulli, and um, I'm actually a graduate student at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Right now I'm in the biology department, um, and I'm also the founder of PA Woods and Forests, the nonprofit that focuses on outreach and citizen science, and additionally, Aside from school and aside from the nonprofit, I also have a media brand that I focus on, which is where the YouTube channel and the Instagram page are, and that's focused on hiking, conservation, and pet care. So I have a jack-of-all-trades type thing going on here with school and with nonprofit and with the media brand. So, but I still somehow find time to sleep and eat, you know, <laughs> at least at least sometimes. But. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that does sound busy. Um, as a child, when did you start showing an interest for the outdoors and and uh, and wildlife? Yeah, this is all really fascinating. So, as a young kid, my family, like my parents, put in a small pond, and they would always take us out to like local plant nurseries, and we'd always have the chance to see frogs and toads at like my grandparents' house or places like that. You know, just uh, relatives and stuff so uh, i always had the chance to be around it and it wasn't until maybe i was like 11 or 12 i started to get interested in it but i really didn't do a whole lot with like keeping frogs i mean we had them occasionally as pets off and on but it never was really something that i saw myself wanting to have a career in or wanting to get involved in down the road. It was just, you know, another thing that I did as I went through like elementary school, middle school, and almost all of high school, I actually didn't keep any frogs. I was more focused on sports, on 
um, trying to get a girlfriend, trying to figure out what I was going to do next with my life. And it wasn't until I'd say maybe the around the middle of my junior year in high school, I started actually by going on a vacation. Since we're talking about vacations, I went on a vacation with, um, hold on, let me silence this real quick before uh, I continue, because I'm sure you're going to be able to hear the air conditioner. So let me turn that off. But uh, yes, I'm that kind of guy right now. And we'll get to why I have an air conditioner running in March while it's <laughs> snowing in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we got to have this like slow build up. We got to have this, you know, we, we got to get there. You don't just, you know, come out from zero to a hundred. You don't just start out at a hundred. You got to, you got to get there. That's why the car doesn't start at a hundred. It starts at zero. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. I just, I, I went on that vacation and I thought, you know, this is really cool. I got the chance to see some different frogs and toads. And I thought, you know, it'd be kind of cool to do something. So, like, cool to keep them, cool to learn more about them. Because I really hadn't done a whole lot up to that point. I would just admire them at my mom's pond. And we would have them, as like I said, as kids. But they really wouldn't live terribly long just because we were so young. Um, but, yeah, so... It was like my, my junior year, we, I started thinking about it and was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm the type of person that wants to go all in on a topic or all in on something. So I, I made that. the choice. Like, you, you get yeah, that? I get that. Yeah. That's how we're here. <laughs> I feel like a lot of your listeners can relate to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think every, every you know, uh, all of his hosts and uh, listeners get our start as you know, wanting to catch every bug and everything that crawls. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, well, if I'm going to choose something, I want to make sure that I'm going to get into the conservation for that and be like as intentional as possible. And I had a choice because it's like, well, you know, I fell in love with, like I was down in Charlotte. I was like, oh, the Southeast is awesome. Like there's so many opportunities down there. And then I had the situation up here in Pennsylvania where it's like, but I have a real, uh, fascination for the northeastern species as well and that's home and that's where I've been so I'm like well you know and then there's exotic frogs too do I want to conserve frogs down South America or in Australia and I mean I was maybe like 16 17 years old thinking about this kind of stuff but I'm like no if I'm gonna pick something I mean this is it like you know <laughs> there is no going back. And so I gave it about a year. I did a lot of research and looked into some different things, joined some forums back in the day, like Dendra board and frog forum and stuff like that. Um, that's for a lot of the old school keepers. I don't know if you guys were ever a part of that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, Likewise, yeah. I was for sure. Yeah. The, the turtle forums I, I had signed on. <laughs> Yeah. And those were a big deal. Like that's where a lot of people got their knowledge from outside of scientific journals yeah, that, was you right. get on those forums and learn how to take care of an animal. Um, and I don't know, just a certain amount of time went by. Um, and I just said, you know what, I think, and there really wasn't a solid reason for why other than I liked Northern leopard frogs, wanted to do conservation to help them. Cause I said, Oh, I don't really see a whole lot of them anymore. I wonder why. I mean, that's kind of where it started. And I said, well, I, I also really love the American toad. So might as well just focus on Pennsylvania. And uh, as time went on, it just sort of took off. It just went, like we said, from zero to 100. So, I mean, that's really where 
it was at zero and I, I started to uh, get some frogs and toads. Like my oldest frog is actually a white tree frog named Max and thought it was a male, but she turned out to be a female. And uh, yes, yeah, wow. so she's going to be nine. Wow. She's a Petco white tree frog too. So she's not even from some of the best places, you know, whether you're talking like Josh's frogs or any of the morph places or whoever else that might be out there, or even reptile expos. Yeah. I started with a frog from Petco and a toad that had been captured. Uh, she fell in like a large pot, an American toad. That was, that was the first two that I ever had that were like mine. That were my pets. And, uh, I don't know. I just started to get really interested and I was a, like really reading into those forums. I was really trying to become active in that. And, um, I went into high school went out of high school, you know, developed that interest, went through community college, but I had no idea that I wanted to even go to school for this stuff. I always looked at it as, you know, think about the math, think about all the stuff that's involved here. And I'm not very great with math and um, hadn't gone super far in high school with it because some people could take calculus and all this other stuff. I've never taken calculus. So I, I never really looked at it as a field I wanted to get into. I just looked at it as a hobby and something that I was really passionate about because of the, the frogs that I keep. So, um, I went through my, uh, I went through community college. I transferred to a four-year school and there was one professor that happened to be there who, uh, he taught all kinds of classes, but he focused on like entomology and herpetology and stuff like that. And I sat down, I got a chance to go meet with him and I was talking to him about some of the stuff and, um, he said, well, you know, why don't you think about going to school for herpetology or why don't you think about getting involved with it because you're just super passionate about all this stuff. And so I, I needed some time to think about it. I, I'm not one to usually rush a decision with something that's like, you know, gonna like your whole life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your whole life comes down to this, you know, you're paying all that money to go to school and it's like a career change. What do you mean? But as time went on, I actually decided to minor in biology and um, I took some of those classes and um, I graduated with a bachelor's in communications. But then I said, well, I'm trying to get into grad school and I'm not sure what I'm going to go for. Um, I can get into more of an emotional story after this, but I'll just keep it moving so people understand like where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I said, you know, I need to figure something out and I said, I'm either going to go for filmmaking, for biology, or uh, maybe communications. And I looked at all the different options, and there was a school close to me that had a master's program. And it just so happened that that was the school that was going to give me the opportunity to come. Because you got to figure, if that's not even your career field, now you want to get a master's in it. There's not a lot of places that are going to take you seriously with that. But um, thankfully, they did. They, they had seen the body of work that I had. Uh, put out and um, uh, you know the rest is history now I'm on year two in grad school and um, you know I'm I'm thinking about potentially working in the field as is doing something with conservation well and and the fact that you had communications I mean every field you know likes that and having that on board because you know so many you know whether it's government or private it, it, it's all about you know, conveying who and what they are to the public. Um, 
whether it's everything from fundraising or sales or, you know, just, um, you know, advertising, you know, so yeah, when, you know, when you have a communications degree and background that I, I'm sure that's why they could snatch you up because, you know, then, you know, like I, um, I watched one of your videos that you're now, uh, you have an educator's license from the state of Pennsylvania. And um, I don't know, uh, here in South Dakota, we have something similar. It's called a, a scientific collector's permit. And you kind of tell, for me, I, I tell the South Dakota Game Fish and Parks what I've just encountered. And and, and this is, uh, it goes beyond a standard fishing license. You know, I, I, I'm all of a sudden, I've got seven rescue turtles. Well, that's beyond, you know, what is called your um, collector's limit, you know, under the, you know, the fishing license. So I said, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to continue to do this, rescue eggs if needed, rescue injured turtles. And so they, they issued me a, the scientific collector's permit. And so um, how, with your license, do they, do they dictate to you um, what they expect from you as an educator, you know, in, in license? Or do you um, develop your own program um, and then, uh, you know, and, they, and do they approve it or do they say go for it? You know, um, yeah, educate us on your educator license. <laughs> Well, I think that the best way to answer this to actually give you a more captivating response is uh, to take your viewers and us here on story time. Uh, and actually, like I'm looking story. to my right because I have my female American Toad Ace, who's been probably the face of the Instagram and the YouTube channel for me for Woods and Forest Media. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to have our first story and kind of segue into understanding a lot of these things, like I said, about for an emotional uh, story. You know, I think we're actually already there, you know, 15 minutes in, right? 18 minutes in. But uh, it goes, it speaks to like the educator permit and it speaks to the nonprofit and stuff. So uh, what I left out to try and make it the least messy that it could be when I explain uh, was... I got to the undergrad school for communications and I had that conversation with the professor, but I really had no idea of how parasites and things like that worked with wild frogs and toads. I just, you know, never had experience with it, never thought about it. So I had been keeping a female American toad ace and I've had a few others that I pulled out of large pots in the ground at a local plant nursery. And, um, she was starting to have prolapses where an internal organ would come out of her and she was having some serious problems. And I thought, well, you know, this is probably going to be the end because she's just continuously having them. And, she, you know, how long can you go with allowing an animal to suffer, I guess, is, is the way I looked at it. And I just watched how resilient and how like persistent Ace was like, Yes, yeah, she's dying, but she's still trying to eat. She's still trying to live. And she was in a small quarantine enclosure at that moment because, you know, I had to, to stop any infections or anything like that. And I just was going through a lot of hard times in life as well. And it was one of those moments where I got the chance to kind of stop and notice something that was happening right in front of me. And it was one of the worst feelings ever, though, to know that I'm watching somebody die or, you know, a toad die. And it felt like I'd failed her, but at the same time, she didn't 
get it. She didn't understand. Like she wanted to live. And the vet in town had said, well, I'm going to give her a couple of days. You know, you arrange whatever you want. And then I want to put her down. And out of like a last second effort, I called the Pittsburgh zoo and said, Hey, like, is there something somebody can do? And they don't really focus on frogs and toads or anything like that. So they gave me the number of a local vet and I dialed the wrong number somehow. And even though I dialed the wrong number, I called the right vet because oh, wow. they're like, Oh, we can probably save her. And you know, this isn't something that our vet hasn't seen before. Like she should be all right. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, like this is a big deal because I've been watching this toad who just has a will to live, like just does not want to die. And here we've got a chance to save her. So I, I made the trip out there. It's like an hour and a half or so. And believe it or not, um, that's who I was looking at is Ace, the toad. She uh, she survived through probably four or five prolapses and through a lot of the uneducated mindset that I had at the time. And I just had that in that moment to really decide, like, what do I want to do? I mean, I have a toad here while I was going through a really hard time in life that inspired me and made me feel like just because things are seemingly at the worst time in life there's always hope like there's still optimism and, and she actually showed that to me and she became an invaluable asset to what i was doing so because of uh her surviving i was able to understand about parasites i was able to understand what was happening and what would have happened to the rest of my frogs at that time and I just made a choice that I was going to do the very best that I could to help the native frogs and toads because of what I had seen from her and whatever that led to, I was just going to take it on and, and whatever it was like, so be it. So it led me down a really serious path of like just so much literature and understanding more about these animals. And then it led to, um, creating a nonprofit and creating a project, a citizen science project to go and rescue them off of the roads and to hopefully identify species that hadn't been documented in certain counties or had never been found in certain counties. Um, and it just kind of led to the body of work that was going to become the nonprofit and the media brand. It all kind of stemmed from uh, this one little toad who was trying to fight to survive in one of the worst cases like worst case scenario as possible. And, you know, she's, she's definitely the, uh, the driving force for what's led me to, to be here talking to you guys. So uh, I'm curious, um, what, what did the vet find that saved her? What was the condition? Was it a parasite pushing out her organs? Um, or, or what, what was her prognosis? So she found that ACE had pinworms and she had nematodes and there was another, there was a third parasite that she got from earthworms. Um, but what I found was they treated her with ivermectin and they got rid of that stuff. And actually now even all of the frogs and toads that I have are treated with ivermectin at least once or twice a year. And that wipes out all of the parasites. And it seems to have, you know, been something successful because nobody has died from parasites from prolapses or anything like that. Um, but I did have to get an educator permit to be able to keep some of the rescued animals. So I worked uh, tirelessly with the state to be able to make that happen. And the way it is in Pennsylvania, you're only allowed to have a certain 
list of species that are abundant unless you get a different type of authorization. But so you're only limited to the abundant species and you have to write out how many of them you have and then you have to actually use them for outreach or education and you have a certain number you have to actually meet. The good thing is YouTube counts for a part of that. So I'm able to accomplish public outreach through YouTube, but um, I also do presentations for the nonprofit, actually bringing the animals and presenting them. But uh, yeah, you have to comply every year. You have to file a report. You have to explain how you use the animals. And um, like the state has to authorize, if, if I wanted to add any more, I would have to ask the chief biologist in the state. Like I'd have to write that through an email and then they send you a formal paper and that paper is your permit and um, you have to have that paper with you wherever so that way if somebody from the fishing boat or whoever um, comes up to you you know you have to have that with you or else it's it's against the rules and they'll take your pets and whatever else might lead to that down the road but um, yeah it's a it's a pretty serious thing we do have scientific collector permits but that's mostly for like colleges that's mostly if you're going to do research in the state so if i wanted to go and do a thesis project on and this is just an example but the northern leopard frog i would have to apply for a scientific collector's permit if i wanted to actually handle the animal um, which is just common practice if you're going to like weigh it or if you're going to observe it in any way but that's how you would have to go about uh, doing that there's two different permits the educator permit is an animal that is in your um it's in it's owned by you but the state has jurisdiction over it still but a scientific collector permit is more so used for if you're going to bring it into a lab you have to sacrifice it so if i were to have said oh i want a scientific collector permit well then i'd have to probably sacrifice my animals for some project i mean that's to my understanding that's just kind of the way that the two work they separated them out just to leave, uh, leave out any uh, gray area. You know, one is for pets, one is for scientific research. Yeah, we, we have the same thing kind of um, for the pets. It's basically, you know, um, with turtles, they go along with your um, um, fisheries license. And then you're only allowed to keep um, four of each species. And, you know, in as a, what's called the possession limit. And, but, you know, I knew I was, you know, I already had my four Western paintings and I knew I was like, oh, well, now I'm going to have a lot more than that with these, these rescued uh, eggs, you know, what would hatch. And so I, I contacted Game and Fish and I go, oh, well, we'll, we'll just issue you a scientific collector's permit and then you'll work with our biologists to censusing to find out, you know, what, you know, what are our numbers now? You know, because we've had so many, so many road kills um, and so many drying up ponds. So, um, so they, 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 they were kind of tossing back and forth. Do we, you know, rescue? Let's just do it this way. So they didn't really have your, ed like what you have, your educator's license. So it sounds to me then with your educator's license, um, if you add on one more animal, that animal has to be uh, cataloged in your collection. Um, yeah. And, uh, um, and, and do they come and inspect your collection to see how they're being kept or, or what, how do they, do, how do they manage that? 
They can. They haven't yet, um, but they can. And, and they probably have seen some of the YouTube videos because I share that with the state and I share like newspaper articles and all that. Um, but yes, at any moment, some. I mean, you have to sign away that um, they're allowed to come in and inspect whenever they want. So if they'd come in right now while we're talking, I mean, they legally have the right to do that. And there's really nothing. I mean, I don't have anything to hide to begin with, but there's just nothing else that I can do. Um, and at the same time, I mean, you run that risk. If you really want to get into this and you want to take these animals in, I can understand the train of thought that they want to make sure that they're being taken care of. So, so um, are you allowed exotic species like the African dart frogs and things like that? So the exotic species are not listed in Pennsylvania, which means as long as they're not a venomous snake, I don't necessarily have to have it registered or uh, I don't have to have my pet, like, you know, identified. <laughs> like some counties and some townships where I live, you have to abide by what they say and certain townships don't allow you to own venomous snakes. But because I own frogs, nobody, like there's really no interest, no concern. And in the state, they say even like exotic frogs don't really count for any permits. You're allowed to have whatever you want in terms of that. Um, so yeah, I have an Australian 125 gallon tank with white tree frogs and uh, green and golden bell frogs that I'm focused on as well. But I really don't, outside of them, I don't really have any exotic stuff just because of what I'm trying to accomplish in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, I love your YouTube channel. I mean, it's really informative. You and your um, two co-hosts, you know, you really put out a lot of information and your and your hikes are fun to follow along on. Um, but I think you would have enjoyed one pond that we were emptying out. We found a frog that was, <laughs> or I guess it'd be a bullfrog, you know, and I say, eh, that's not supposed to be here. You know, a, a frog <laughs> the size of a small cat. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. They can get massive. Um, yeah. For the, for the media brand woods and forest media, we have about five people that are hosts for the podcast. So I have a guy who he's a herpetologist in Erie at the Erie zoo. I mean, he, of course he doesn't bring that in with him. It's just him as a, as a person. Um, he's not representing the zoo when he's a part of the podcast. Uh, but I have somebody who's also a keeper at Josh's Frogs, so she takes care of the tree frogs out there. Um, I've got a graduate student from Clemson, a friend of mine who also is the hiking ho How do I put it? He's the host of the hiking show, and he's a pastor in Johnstown uh, in Pennsylvania. And so we go out around western and central Pennsylvania. I go with him for the hiking show as well. So he's a part of the podcast and also part of the hiking show. So yeah, we have like a hiking show, a podcast, and then I have like a pet care show, which focuses on taking care of frogs and toads, but um, giving like educational and entertaining content about, you know, whether that be the native frogs or the Australian frogs. But yeah, um, I've actually seen a pretty uh, significant interest in all three facets. It's just... I don't know what it is right now. It's been challenging trying to get the media out there. I think I just got to find the right outlets to like share my stuff. So that way people will see it because I mean, I have a lot that I've invested in with like uh, tech gear and um, like act the actual setups are, are beautiful for the tanks. And so I really want to show people these things, but it's just trying to find the right places to 
to share it, I guess, is, is the challenge for me. Mm-hmm. How many habitats are you managing right now in your collection? So I'm not the type of person who has like thousands of pets. Um, I have three that are focused in the main show wild vivariums, but um, a lot of the old followers or people who have been watching what I've been producing for a while are aware of uh, one of the main things that I focus on, which I try to create like a Pennsylvania styled vivarium, like an ecosystem for native plants and animals. And since I found out about ACE uh, with getting parasites and stuff, she's actually been in some form of a quarantine for about the last four years or so. And part of the reason why is because I've been preparing at least for the last five years. So since 2018 to build her a larger enclosure, uh, that was actually one of the promises that I, I made uh, with having her survive. I said, I'm going to build you. I'm going to have like the most realistic, the best American toad tank that can possibly be created. And so this is, um, we're at the, I don't want to say the final stages, but I'm working with a company to actually design this tank and it's going to have like automated weather. Um, it's in a, we're in a climate controlled room right now. So it'll have authentic highs and lows. Um, I'll be able to create cold fronts. I'm trying to replicate a thunderstorm. I've been spending five years trying to understand how to do that. Um, but it's going to focus on American toads, wood frogs, and the purple pitcher plant, which is a carnivorous plant that eats plant. I'm sorry, it doesn't eat plants, eats insects and animals in Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, the goal is I want to create a docuseries of that and showcase how these creatures are changing and how, you know, whether that be the weather around them or the habitat around them, you know, think of an ecosystem that has no invasive species. I mean, it's almost foreign to us right now because you go out into the woods anywhere and it's like, there's something that's not supposed to be there. But the cool thing for where this is going to start off is almost like an Eden or a garden where it'll look like maybe what Pennsylvania had looked like, or at least an interpretation of what Pennsylvania looked like before invasive species. And as the show, as the seasons will uh, go on for this, I'm going to start introducing like invasive plants. Maybe there'll be a year where it gets warmer or it's too, or like it's a lot cooler or it gets really wet, um, you know, and there's a lot more that I can introduce into this. And it's, um, I think more of like a perspective of looking at it under a microscope of how the world around us is actually handling all of the change and all of the uh, challenges that are thrown at it. And so I'm hoping to showcase that with this upcoming project. So I, I only have four enclosures, but I put a lot of effort and a lot of time into them and I don't have anything lesser than a 67 gallon. That, nice. That's good. <laughs> so um, in what is the, this um, big ecosystem um, size? What, what is that habitat size at? Well, I spent a lot of time observing my pets and because I have the chance to rescue these animals and film them in the wild, I get a chance to really understand them deeper than what some other, um, even some researchers are because I'm just there. I just happen to be so present in the lives of different populations of American toads and wood frogs. And I get the chance to see multiple bogs that have these pitcher plants where these animals are coming to breed sometimes. So 
with having a lot of that information, I want to take what I learned from the field and from literature, and I want to showcase that. And I'm a big advocate for like less animals and more space. That's yeah. just something that I, I gravitate towards and what I actually showcase. Um, so the way I looked at it was you have wood frogs, which are very active animals, and you have American toads, which a lot of people sleep on and they think they're lazy, but not ace. And if you give another toad the opportunity, probably not that toad either. So, you know, you see a lot of bad examples on YouTube of frogs and toads being kept in like shoe boxes and there's 10 of them or whatever, but I'm trying to showcase how a spread out enclosure. So it's going to be about 244 gallons, which is like uh, six foot, like eight inches or six foot, nine inches long. And it's going to be 23 inches wide and like 30 inches high. And oh. the reason for that is um, I want there to be as much space as possible for the animals to get away from each other. Like maybe they won't even see each other and like for a long period, like they would have to travel to see each other. And the thinking behind that is, you know, you cut down on stress, you cut down on competition and you also showcase more natural behavior because they do see each other more than we think in the wild, but uh, not, not quite as much as in captivity. So a large tank like that, is going to do something. It's going to be a lot different than, you know, a, even a 75 gallon or a 125 gallon by giving them that much space. So it'll be really interesting to report and see how they interact. Yeah. So when you're out like herping and looking for toads, you're not finding 10 of them all on top of each other in one spot. It, like how many do you find near each other just in general? Well, I think this is another good, uh, I don't want to say story time, but it's another good point to bring up for the viewers here. So uh, I do go herping, but it's more selective. Um, I founded a nonprofit, PA Woods and Forests, and we focus on the conservation of a lot more of the abundant species in Pennsylvania, but it's frog and toad oriented and there's carnivorous plants, millipedes and other things like that. But a project that I focused on over the last five years is a project called Frog Week, where I go out and I film these animals where I'm trying to either help them from getting hit on the road or I'm documenting them in their native habitat. But a big part of what I do is I focus on the animals that are in suburban neighborhoods because those are the animals that are declining the most. So um, it's going to be a five-year project this year. So Frog Week turns five and... Okay. I'm really excited about it. It's crazy and how it's developed. You know, it went from just getting people to care about your local frogs and toads to um, helping four targeted species repopulate in suburban neighborhoods, but also like filming how these animals interact in the wild. So it's documentary styled and it's also presentation styled. So I'll actually take you there or I'll film and do like BBC America or Animal Planet style like documentary where it's just the animals. But um, so if we're talking about like road rescues, I would say if it's a good night, <laughs> I could probably get about 25 toads. Um, generally, you only find one or two in one location trying to cross at the same time. But if you go back on the same road, which I do, I patrol. Um, I have a pretty wide area. I patrol about four counties. Um, but if you go to where the hotspots are 
on any given night, you'll see multiple frogs and toads have died in the same spot. And um, yeah, I can come back or I can go to a pool or a pond and I can show up with, you know, 10 spotted salamanders or 15 American toads at one time. And that's within a mile radius or a two mile radius. But so they definitely are um, seeing each other in the wild then. Oh, yeah. I think the better thing outside of like frog week and road rescues would be when we're actually traveling into their habitat after the breeding season to find them, because the breeding season is its own animal in a way, so to speak, because they have to see each other because they all have that drive, you know, to breed and to to do whatever they have to do uh, to further their genes. That's just their drive. But whenever you get a chance and say like late May, June, July, August, and you see them in their habitat, um, you do actually see them interacting like American toads and wood frogs where I'm at, like, especially in the highlands, you do actually see American toads might be literally right next to a wood frog. Um, and I've seen this a couple times. So yeah, I think they do interact, um, especially when they're hunting more so as juveniles, but, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, I'd say it's more of an art if you're trying to create some type of a mixed species tank because it's there's so many opportunities for it to go wrong. But if you really look at the space that they have and how they're occupying it, um, then you're able to do something special. But yeah, I mean, they do interact, but not to the degree of what we have in captivity for them. Are their tadpoles very different in size between the wood frog and you know the toad yeah and i mean we're not even getting at like the gray tree frog or the pickerel frog but for example yeah the wood frog has massive egg clutches like one it'll lay one egg clutch but they're the most impressive looking eggs for a frog at least in pennsylvania because they're big and it's just not something you just expect to come out of the smallest pond frog in the state um, and toads, you know, they're significantly bigger than wood frogs and they're robust. You know, some people think they're very like, uh, I don't want to say overweight, but you know, it's kind of true for toads. They do tend to eat more than they should. And they do look overweight a lot. They look kind of pudgy, like, uh, job of the hut. But anyway, <laughs> that's off topic. The eggs that they lay are very small and they're like a spiral and they're very like sensitive actually i've had a very hard time with pulling eggs out of water and trying to relocate them uh, and have a survival rate greater than zero oh. uh, compared to wood frogs which you can pull their eggs out you know set them in another area and then boom their eggs develop and now you've got baby tadpoles running around but the big difference is to get at your question it's not necessarily the size of the tadpole. It's if it's carnivorous or not, because wood frog tadpoles will eat toad tadpoles and anybody else that shares the vernal pool with them. So understanding how to navigate that even in the wild, you know, creating habitat for these animals is, uh, you know, it's a challenge. You have to make sure that everybody is happy and nobody's eating the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're struggling with that over there, Peggy, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least they haven't taken off any body parts. They've just, you know, skinned each other. And but, at least you know, frogs can regrow their body parts, right? Uh, actually, only salamanders. Oh, okay. So, so frogs and toads, you know, if they lose an eye or if they lose their front leg or whatever, it's it's gone. Like for us, um, I've heard that they can regrow toes, but outside of their toes, I don't believe anything else. Okay. Hmm. 
but uh, you know the thing that I'm surprised in, in listening to a lot of you who are much more steeped in knowledge in the frogs and toads is how long they live. I mean, that's what really surprised me. You know, the to hear you know how old some of the individuals are in you know a lot of these people's collections. And it's like, wow, I had no idea they lived 20 years, you know, or something like that um, on some of these species. Um, so it really has given me a um, uh, more of a, a wonder about uh, the frogs and toads. But the one thing I was going to ask you is I, I see on a lot of the YouTube, there's a lot of people putting in landscape ponds in people's backyards. And have you ever been asked to come and speak at uh, a, a water god garden society, you know, that they, they place um, all these beautiful created ponds in, in people's landscapes has have they been asking for your input on that yeah uh so i can speak i'll put on my hat for the nonprofit here and i'll explain that uh you're switching just in between them both <laughs> i don't know how to tag one of them down because it's like oh you ask a question about the 240 gallon tank then it goes into well what i rescue turtles <laughs> Because I've yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's all connected. So you know. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, put on the PA Woods and Forest hat here. <laughs> so uh I actually just talked about this in a in a podcast just a little bit ago. So I look at it in terms of four phases and how I'm going to uh evaluate and help a frog a, a species in the wild. So the first one is doing research and trying to locate that species. Because if you don't know where it is, you can't help it. So trying to understand where it's found and um, just little nuance information about it. And then phase two is actually going out and identifying like where breeding population is. So not just finding it on the road here and there, but actually where are they, where are they living and how are they living and what are they doing with, the, with breeding? So yeah, I, I try to find them in breeding pools or in ponds or wherever they might be located. Phase three is um, trying to help them with doing road rescues and trying to, to do management of their habitat and also of them like uh, trying to help if they have bacterial infections or uh, like if they're wounded or whatever. So that's that's phase three. And phase four is like translocation if, if it's possible, if it's legal and um, also creating habitat like man-made pools. So if you go back and look at last year's frog week, I put in these artificial vernal pools at the house and it was made to try and interest wood frogs to come and reproduce. So that might sound very straightforward and it might sound very easy, but a wood frog is a deep forest animal. Uh, they have a lot of dependency on canopy cover and what I'm asking for is for a frog that needs a canopy to come to an open area and reproduce. And there's a lot of research that I relied on for that. There's one that I leaned on more heavily. Um, it was about how to successfully create artificial vernal pools. And it had markers as to what would actually be a filled vernal pool, which is like the abundance of green frogs or newts because they eat everybody else. So you have to design it in a way to keep them out, but also interest your target species. So I spent the time trying to figure that out and just adding in little things that I could 
to try and interest the wood frogs to show up. So the first year I did it, I got a, a breeding pair. They laid eggs. It was fantastic. I thought that's great, right? But in that article, the, the main one that I was I'm referencing, it said, oh, yeah, you might get them like once in a while or here and there. Like they might show up and lay eggs and then you'll never see them again and they don't come back. So I'm like, all right, so year one was a success. Was it a fluke? That was Frog Week 2021. Frog Week 2022, um, I added a second vernal pool because I thought I'd sort them out. I'd put the American toads in one vernal pool and then the wood frogs in the other. Mm -hmm. Well, I got eight egg clutches from year one to year two, (laughs) and they dominated the vernal pools. And my, my mom actually has a pond on the property, so the toads chose to breed in the pond. But artificial pools, if they're created to target a certain species... Uh, and it, it takes a lot of understanding them to really build it. And, you know, they have to be present in the in the ecosystem to begin with. But, yeah, you can successfully create artificial pools to bring any frog or toad to your backyard. And, and that is a big part of what I'm trying to accomplish with the suburban neighborhoods and trying to uh, interest people to care about their local species is, you know, hey, you know, let me put a pond in your backyard or let me put some small water feature in your backyard and let's see what comes. And up to this point, I've had a little bit of success with that. It's been more so special cases where we found a species that hadn't been documented before. So I'm kind of working with uh, a, a family trying to create a vernal pool in their yard to interest this frog, to try and bring it to their house so they can help to manage it and oversee it. But my long-winded answer is yes, I do care, and, and I am actively pursuing people uh, giving me those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, how are you? How, how much distance are you seeing them uh, travel? You're saying, you know, there's this gap of here's their covered canopy habitat, and now they have to travel across a span of X in order to get to these manufactured vernal ponds. Um, Uh, Have you been documenting that distance of how far they'll travel um, as of yet? So um, (laughs) to try and make this not a long-winded answer, because I I don't want to keep doing that. (laughs) Oh, you're good. I have. This is my favorite kind of guest. One question, and then you wait a little bit, and then you ask another question, and you just wait a little bit. It's great. I get to listen. (laughs) So because we have a road right next to our house, um, I can kind of measure that without, I mean, of course, that's, that's bad practice. I should probably measure it more scientifically, but um, if I had to estimate it out, I would say probably if they're going from the one woodland to the house, like to the, to the area where the pools are, it's roughly about 50 yards that they've got to go out of their comfort zone to go and cross a road, which is maybe, maybe 10 feet wide. It's not a very big road, but they've got to cross that road, which is busy. And then they've got to come through the backyard. Um, and that, you know, that's only if they're coming directly from the side, if they're coming maybe from up the street, you know, they've got to make up more distance. So it, it just kind of depends on where they come from, but it's just wild to think that a a frog who's a deep forest animal has decided and not just one, but a lot of them have decided, Oh, here's a new place to breed. We're going to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And they're, they tolerate me filming them. They tolerate uh, 
you know, the yard, they tolerate people, uh, lights turning on and off. It's just, it's, it's mind blowing to me because you read all this stuff in literature and you understand like what their habitat is. And then they're coming out of nowhere to breed somewhere that maybe they're not technically supposed to be at, but it's, it's working. And it just shows that a citizen science project, even for a species that people deem like, you know, boring and not really important, uh, here we go. You know, we've got it, we've got something that actually is a proof of concept that's working and I can showcase that on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Have you ever used Google Earth? I mean, I, I really rely on that when they, they have me fill out my scientific collector's permit paperwork at the end of the year, how many species I collected. You know, I, I have to have, you know, um, the precise location. Um, you know, so I use Google Maps and, you know, I can get, you know, all the, uh, the, the location data off of there. You just put a point, you know, um, take the cursor and just point it there. And then you're getting all the latitude, longitude, you know, township, whatever, you know, just off of there. So I didn't even have to really collect it while I was out in the field. I know where I had been that day, you know, what pond I took them from, what pond I was licensed to put them at. And then I just could get all my location data off Google Earth that night, you know, so do you use them too, or do you use, are you uh, sticking with your phone on your location maps? Um, I use Google maps and I save the coordinates, but the state also for the last like, uh, 10 years has had a herp survey going on. It's called PARS Pennsylvania amphibian reptile survey. And I was an active participant in that. Um, I think they're either they're done with it this year or they're getting towards the end of it. Um, but I had more interest than just going herping and just filling out vouchers for them. So the nonprofit right now, what we're working to do is create our own database where we can keep tabs on our target species and we can have this in place because, uh, so, uh, you know, historical locations and frogs that have historically existed in, in locations, it's all about latitude and longitude and, and where they've been found. Can you document it? Well, a lot of times, frogs and toads and others are declining and we don't necessarily know that or we don't tend to care about those types of things unless it's an endangered or threatened species so what we're actually trying to do is keep tabs and we're trying to create something so that way let's say uh the spring peeper or the northern green frog in pennsylvania starts to decline and if we have the data that's been following them we'll know exactly where they've been we'll know how many of them we found and we're creating hopefully a database that can step in if if a species becomes endangered or it declines and we can say hey you know if you want to translocate populations here you can do that or if you want to do maintenance or like some type of uh, evaluation of the habitat you can do that here with the state. So we're hoping that this will catch on, uh, but it also can be a tool used for invasive species, mm -hmm. Japanese knotweed and barberry and other plants like that are a nuisance out here. And we could actually provide that data for landowners like nonprofits and the state to potentially get grant funding to remove those plants. So not only could we help the neighborhoods, not only could we help nonprofits and the state, but we could provide a service that 
is essentially for the benefit of everybody, whether that be getting stuff out of your yard, invasive, invasive plant removal or insect, if we wanted to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but we also have lists of, you know, invertebrates and animals that we know where they are and we know where they've been and we have years of data to showcase that. And so that's a big part of what we're trying to um, organize next for the nonprofit. So yes, I, I do heavily rely on Google Earth and on these coordinate systems for GIS. Uh, and I keep that all right now tight vested. So that way I know where these certain things are to go back and film them and to like right now understand how they're doing. And you'll see a lot of that in Frog Week this year, but uh, I'm, I'm going to avoid a, a long-winded answer here. So I'll just end with that. <laughs> okay. and, and what week is Frog Week? What, um, what's, what, the, what is the calendar date for that? August 6th is a Sunday. So I'm starting it July 31st because if I started on a Sunday, I'm afraid that people won't be as active for whatever reason. When you start on a Monday, everybody else, their the rhythm is built into a Monday, like a work week or whatever. So it just seems to be more uh, productive. But yeah, it's going to... Uh, so the way to describe it quickly is that it's a citizen science project that I film from February until about June or July. And then I release the videos in chronological order, focusing on our target species for PA woods and forests. And I showcase, it'll be nine videos this year. Um, and it's showcased like, you know, one or two videos come out per day for an entire week. And there's all kinds of stuff that goes on with businesses that support it and sponsor it. And um, there's events that I try to host. So um, it's slowly becoming bigger. It's just taken some time and it's pretty cool to see uh, the region, how it's been responding to this. Like I've had people from Pittsburgh, Erie and Philadelphia and Harrisburg all contact me and I've had people request to do stories for magazines and newspaper articles. So it's, it's been pretty cool to see, you know, it, it should inspire any of your listeners that if they set their mind to do something, even if they think it's something small or insignificant, it could still make a difference. Well, it, it sounds that's about the same time as we have all of our ponds drying up here in the Black Hills. That uh, maybe we need to start a turtle week to do all those rescues, <laughs> and <laughs> you know that's when I'll uh, uh, see. You know, I think that uh, that will bring more attention to our efforts at that time of year. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it could be whatever you want it to be. You can call it Turtle Watch, Turtle Week turtle ninja turtles there you <laughs> can be whatever you want it to be <laughs> get the young crowd in on it <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah it's it, it's grueling it, it, it happens usually right at the same time as our sturgis motorcycle rally uh -huh. and like oh geez you know here i was you know collecting about i can't remember 11 out of one pond and uh, a mile away from that was the pond I was to release them in, and then I'm surrounded by about 50 bikers. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, they were uh, being escorted by two uh, park rangers, just so that I go, "Sorry, guys, I don't have time to talk. I got to release these, or I'm, I'm dying a heat stroke here." <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, that's a rough time of year for here. I, what, what's it like in Pennsylvania while you're doing this at that time? 
Well, the season ends. I mean, that's pretty much a, a reason for why we have it in August. And if you do it too late, people think they're out of sight, out of mind. And once you get past August, people are not really thinking about frogs anymore. They're thinking about Halloween and fall and football. So it's like, well, it's right before all of that. And it's right at the end of, um, you know, 4th of July. It's right after a lot of the big things that people plan for, like usually vacations they take in late August. So it's like in a sweet spot, at least for me, uh, for why I chose like the first week of August. But uh, yeah, the season generally ends. They're all away from the breeding pools. And um, another reason why they, like I, I, I tend to end it then is uh, you don't necessarily see any wounded on the roads or anything like that. It's If it's going to happen, it's more of like a case-by-case case situation rather than, you know, there's 10 frogs in the last week that just got hit or uh, that a cat attacked or whatever. So, it, you know, really, really, really dies down around late July to August unless you're actively going into the forest, like deeper into the forest to find them. So are you also documenting the other road kills when you're out there, the snakes and the turtles and such? Now PARS does that. Um, and I have a friend who he he'll photograph stuff that's dead. Um, now I've done it sparingly. I could film and photograph a lot more of it, but out of respect for them, I think, cause I'm a softy because I, I keep a lot of these animals so I tend not to, to doc, like I don't uh, photograph it if it's been run over. I also have to be mindful too. Like if I put that on frog week, because it might turn people off, even though it's a realistic thing that happens. If I show a frog that was uh, splattered by a, uh, you know, a Mack truck or whatever, that might not be the best way to, to get the message across. Um, but right. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right. If I'm if I'm playing it in front of my kids here and then we're just going to go to that, then I'm probably not going to be watching your YouTube on my TV in my living room in front of my kids anymore. So just, yeah, uh, yeah. they don't need yeah. to see that. <laughs> I, I, I've taken, um, I didn't take a picture of, of the carcasses before and uh, now I do, but I don't show them just, you know, in case, for my scientific collector's permit you know I, I document what the female looked like if there was you know usually they're pretty broken up but you can still see their color patterns on their plastron and carapace um, I won't show it to anybody but I can then when when the young are hatched I can see which ones of the young came out patterned like their mother which I have seen um, and then which ones could, you know, look possibly like, you know, the father or fathers as it is with turtles that I haven't seen, you know, just to see, you know, uh, you know, ge genetic inheritable numbers as far as how much the mother is growing her pattern over what the males may be. So when, when you find the, um, uh, species that aren't supposed to be there, um, amphibian, do they tell you to collect them and remove them or, or do you just document their presence? So I'm sorry, I, I gave you a misunderstanding. What I meant was like a big part of my work too, is going out to find animals that are supposed to be there, but have, have not been documented. So I'm not talking invasive species. Ironically, I'm just talking 
like for example, uh, there's two counties in Pennsylvania where the Eastern gray tree frog never was found. And for frog week 2021, I set out to actually accomplish finding it there because I had a good reason to believe from a lot of literature review and um, a lot of like understanding the map that PARS created that there's a good chance that they could exist out there. So, um, scientifically speaking, a lot of people would have wanted a voucher. Uh, like they would have wanted me to collect a gray tree frog, kill it and bring it in. But like I told you, I mean, I'm a softy. I'm just like, uh, I'm not going to bring, you know, I'm not doing that. But with, what with I would like video do, oh, and God. everything, you, you don't yeah. really need it. You could take a swab DNA, like video of you taking its DNA, get the DNA tested. You don't have to kill anything. It's yeah. completely possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of old school guys though in the field that still want specimens. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I have, thankfully I have audio, I have video and I have all kinds of other proof that I can show. And it's, it was documented. So the way it works for the state survey, it has to get verified by three scientists before it's confirmed. And so they confirmed it. Um, and I'm actually hoping to publish this in a journal whenever I, I'm able to finish it off for grad school. Uh, this is one of the things that doing the citizen science project has accomplished is documenting a presence of a frog that had never been documented in two counties before. And uh, they have done state surveys, they've done national surveys. And there's a book actually that took place in Indiana, Pennsylvania, that was like for all of the North and like Northeast and Southeastern species, the guy was at my school like 20 or 30 years ago. So there was a survey that was done and they, they had not found them. So it's like really cool that I get the chance to fill in a gap that others couldn't, you know, historically, and, and it might not be an endangered species or an at-risk species, but it means a lot to me because I keep these animals at home and, you know, I want to see them prosper. I want to see them succeed. So how cool is it that somebody who is a pet keeper of these got the chance to go out and actually find it? You know, that to yes. me, at least it, it really is a special feeling. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it, it takes more people doing things. Um, like, I don't know. You just have to do it. Like you, like you've said, you start at zero, like, but if you want to do something, you just have to do it. You can't think of every, every reason not to, you just have to go. And if you fail, well, you fail, you know, <laughs> or you haven't succeeded yeah, yet. <laughs> one, or, one way or the other, or you, you learn from your mistakes, you move forward, you yeah. keep going, you know? Well, that's exactly. That's, well, and it, that's why, you know, when it comes to invasive species, why I've joined, you know, as, as many, you know, reptile groups within the hundred mile radius or even, you know, statewide so that, you know, when I find the endangered species out there and, and I've taken pictures of them, you know, uh, but I just didn't have traps with me to catch them. You know, like the yellow belly that's not supposed to be in our ponds, the, the red ear sliders, you know. Um, so I've been talking with the biologists. They want them caught. They want them removed. And they go, well, what are you going to do with them? And I said, well, you know, because I belong to these groups, you know, and a lot of people are building backyards ponds. I'm going to try to, you know, um, find homes for them. You know, and then if basically if I can't find homes and they want them euthanized but uh you know with ha I'm, you know, two groups out of wyoming you know two groups here in south dakota um, a lot of people that have enclosed backyard ponds they want those bright you know turtles in their ponds you know just you know, 
their, their kids would love playing with them and such from what I'm hearing from some in the group that, uh, you know, so it's almost like I found them homes before I caught them because I'm a softie too. And it seems like the older they get, I get the softer I get, you know, I, I um, you know, that's one thing I, I hated getting my degree was capturing and killing and preparing museum specimens. It's like, why, <laughs> why do we have to do this? You know, but yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that, uh, you know, uh, that there, you just, it sounds to me that your state is really utilizing more citizen scientists. Um, you know, is, is that because of budget constraints or, you know, because a lot of you like, persons like myself are coming forward. I want to do this. What's it take for you to let me do this? And how can you prosper on what I want to do? I mean, how, how is it in your state? I'd say definitely the second part of what you said, like, I want to do this because there are a lot of citizen scientists that are contributing to like just going herping. But the fact that I'm trying to make it obvious and like, I'm trying to be as transparent as possible and share whatever newspaper article or news story or like magazine write-up comes my way uh i share that then with the state so it's like they don't really ask for that and i don't even know if they read it to be honest with you but just the fact that like they gave me the permit and now i'm like here let me just turn all this over to you so you see what i'm doing with it i think that makes a big difference compared to somebody who uh is just out there as this, you know, they say, and, and I'm not trying to discredit anybody or disrespect anybody, but like, if they're just out there herping, that's one thing, but if they're actually out there doing it either for a reason, or if they're being very, uh, if they're displaying, if they're, if they're showcasing it, then there's a lot more opportunity with that. Yeah. In, in-depth data collection is a lot different than herping. I mean, herping yeah. is data collection, but it's not, not that much data you know yeah like you might want to go through the entire state of south dakota and just see what you could find for herping but like and that's what i try to explain to people too for what i'm trying to do i do want to go and find things and help them but i'm very specific on like where where exactly does this exist and how can i help it like what can i do to help this certain population so there might be a thousand populations in the state of you know whatever animal or more but it's like well, what can i do for this one and to some people who are herpers, that's foreign because it's like, man, I'm traveling, I'm getting out there, going to go look for these different animals. But um, I'm trying to get some people around me even to appreciate that or to, you know, to um, to come to that realization or come to that idea as I have. Like, hey, we could actually do something special for a local population. It doesn't have to be a couple hours away. It could be right, you know, down the street. We can actually try and make a difference. Yeah, that's that's a great, um, uh, great effort to get that mindset, you know, changed. You know, I, I'm trying to do that here, where fishermen are saying, "Well, why do you want to save turtles? They, you know, they um, they they eat my population that I want to fish." And so I'm educating them that if you don't have, you know, turtles and other carnivores there to remove the weak fish, the wobblers that you know, we would call them, then uh, the disease is going to spread and you're going to lose more fish than if you allow the predators to take out the wheat. They go, well, what about the fish's eggs? You know, the, the turtles will eat all the fish's eggs. And I go, well, those fish can put those eggs 
you know, in, in crevices along the bank and under rock and in between rock that the turtles can't get to. And there again, you know, they're, they're hiding them from other predators too. So, you know, the turtles do have uh, an ecological you know, niche that they're, you know, they're doing their job at, you know, how many dead fish you usually see along a lake that fishermen just, oh, I don't want to take and clean this fish. And so they just discard it and along the bank. And I've seen turtles come up onto the bank and grab those carcasses and bring them down into the water and eat them. And so they're, they, you know, they keep the environment clean um, for not only, you know, the, the pond or lakes inhabitants, but, you know, the fishermen, you know, um, you know, so that we don't have a bunch of stinking fish along the bank. So, yeah, it, it's a matter of educating the public and having the public appreciate what they didn't know about the species. Yeah, and that's been one of the most challenging things for me, establishing a board, because I have people who are hardcore into the ecology and they're like, well, we need to have a research group. And it's like, okay. And I, I had a comment made like, we need to get, you know, if somebody else is doing it, they'd have six uh, herpetologists or six ecologists doing the work. But what they forget is, and I don't know if anybody here has any sports interests, but you know, when you're making a team, when you're building a team, you can't all play the same position and think that you're going to actually succeed. So the way I look at it is, for example, the NFL draft, they're going to go and get whatever position they need filled. And it's the same thing, how I look at it in terms of either recruitment or actually trying to fill a position for the nonprofit is we want to get the best person available for the immediate need that we have. I can find five other guys who might want to go look for frogs, but can I find somebody who knows how to make flyers? Can I find somebody who knows how to like advertise on Facebook? Or can I find somebody who owns a business that has connections with people that I don't? And those are some of the things that um, your just your ecologist might not be able to bring to the table. Um, and then what's their availability like? Like, do you, do they have the same dedication to it that I do? I mean, there's a lot of things you can think about with that. And these are some of the things that I've tried to explain as well. Um, so we have outreach events with like frog walks, millipede roundups, where like I catch millipedes, teach people their importance or showcase frogs in, in their natural habitat. And that's more for, it's not even just for the public. It's also for the board members and volunteers to get a picture of this, because if they actually see this happening in the wild, you know, I can explain all the scientific banter and I can go all out and explain through literature and give them the articles. But if they don't actually see the animal and feel a certain type of way about it, it really doesn't matter what I say. So like citizen science and outreach between both of them are exactly where we are right now. And I think that's where we need to be to get our board and the volunteers and other members uh, interested and excited about these types of things. Well, yeah. it's also a whole volunteer too. So like getting six herpetologists to come in, <laughs> you know, that's not like you, they got to be really dedicated into that specific thing in order to like come and dedicate time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Be And, and mostly, you know, uh, licensed, licensed scientists, you know, like that, they're usually, you know, working in a university setting and, and, uh, you know, students and curriculum and all that, you know, and, and their research projects come first. So 
you know, I, I know the universities are looking for projects and, and study subjects, you know, for their, um, uh, you know, for their students. It's just, um, you know, uh, and that's the one thing that they've talked to me about too, is like, well, it, okay, so if we start this assurance colony for our, our listed um, ornate box turtles, um, we're going to do a census on them. And, you know, so we set you up with this colony on your three acres. How is that going to assist, you know, our state universities? And I go, well, you can have fecundity studies, you know, you can do, um, you know, um, you know, uh, egg mortality. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things you can come up with once you have these turtles in hand, you know, growth rates, growth rates per diet, you know, all these sorts of things, you know, not only just in producing get to be released and increase the numbers, but, you know, you, you can have a lot of students, you know, earn degrees off of these easily accessible animals that are in the insurance colonies. Uh, so, I mean, how many people do you now work with um, in all of your different endeavors, Aaron? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, I think that you're the first person to ask me that now, like the whole, like from 2022 to now. So that's kind of funny that it's taken this long for somebody to ask me that, <laughs> but I'll say this. Um, I'm usually, so I have class, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the semester, Monday and, and Wednesday, I have a break of, of about three to five hours, depending on the day. And, uh, generally I'm sending out somewhere between three to five emails and I'm on the phone with a business or an organization or something, at least one or two, if not more than that, sometimes even up to five phone calls a day, like, and that's just like breaks in between school. Um, it's to the point now where I, <laughs> I don't actually have an answer for you as to how many people, because there's just so much going on, but uh, it's at a point right now where I know that we're actually gaining, we're making progress because like, I'm starting to get businesses to be interested in partnering for like a picture contest and businesses helping us to do fundraisers so we can actually start generating some revenue. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I've just, you know, newspaper articles and news stories and even podcast episodes like this with you guys. Mm -hmm. So, I try to do the best that I can to keep up with everybody. I'm not, I'm definitely not as good as what I should be, but I'm probably better than what I would have ever been up to this point because of how serious I take it. Um, I'm at a point where I still can try to find time to schedule meetings and pencil people in, but I'm also not, uh, I don't know. I'm not like completely free either. So I try to keep it healthy. It's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's uh, based off the Mondays that uh, Matthew and I've had today. <laughs> Keeping it healthy—that's one way of putting it, isn't it, Matthew? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Well, so, are you are you collecting anything from the wild still, or have you done that and now you're kind of done doing that? Well, this is leading somewhere too, so. This will be the first time I officially talk about something like this. So it's not necessarily good though. Um, so this year 
this past year I've gone, I had a hot streak of, I don't know why this happened, but from the fall, actually dating back to May. So like May, I lost a male gray tree frog who was one of the oldest in my collection. He was like a very important piece to me. Like he was, he was a very good pet. He was beautiful, completely different color than other gray tree frogs. It's, it's a very serious, it's a sad loss, but from February, yeah, from September until January, I like, for whatever reason, lost like one pet each month going from September to, to January. And, and I was doing everything I could taking animals to the vet, like everything that I could, but, um, it wasn't all the native stuff. It was some exotics and some natives, but I lost a male American toad that I had for about seven years or six years or something like that. And I lost a wood frog that I had for about three, um, both males and they're both, they were both scheduled to go into that 244 gallon tank. Um, but now that I don't have them, I reached out to the state and said, Hey, I, I don't, I actually wrote it like this too. I can never replace what I lost because of how valuable they were to me, mm-hmm. but can't, is there a way that I can rescue a male wood frog and a male American toad this year and, and have them. And they wrote back to me very fast, faster than getting the permit. And they said, uh, yeah, you know, um, they felt bad and they said, you're more than welcome. You're free to, uh, to max out the number of specimens that you were allowed to have anyway. So I didn't have to do any other paperwork. So yeah, this will be the first time ever on frog week and it's, it's controversial. I don't know if I'm going to show it or not. Um, but I will be taking in probably the next couple of weeks, a male wood frog and at some point a male American toad. I don't know when, I don't know how that's going to look. I'm just kind of leaving it up to, uh, what, you know, I don't know what anybody believes, but just, I'm going to, I'm not going to leave it up to chance. I'm going to say that it'll just be the frog or toad that I believe is supposed to be mine is is the best way to describe it. I'm not going to hoard them or anything like that. I'm just going to take whoever comes to me that is in need. Yeah. Well, that sounds like the way I've gotten the two uh, box turtles that I have. You know, it's, I, I wasn't seeking them. All of a sudden I just got these phone calls. We have this injured one, that injured one. So what's your, now that you've been through some, uh, how, like, uh, parasite issues, um, What's your biosecurity going to be bringing, bringing two new things from the wild in? That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And, um, I also should say too, like, so I lost about like four or five pets and one was a skink. One was, you know, wood frog. One was a toad. Um, one was a millipede. So I've, I've had just like really random pets that have passed. And uh, I mean, the millipedes kind of like, they're harder to gauge as to how old they are. So you just never know. But like, I've had a lot of these guys five, six, seven years. So it was a real shock to me with what happened. Um, especially because they see the vet, like I spend over a thousand dollars in vet care every year and, uh, you know, it just completely unexpected, but, and, and they've told me, you know, that kind of stuff can happen. Um, just random things, you know, we can't necessarily prepare for or plan for, but, um, my protocol for these two is that they will live, they're going to be in a quarantine tank together. Um, they're going to generally be from the same region and, uh, like very, very close, hopefully within a mile of each other. Um, but they will see the vet, they'll get a fecal sample. 
and they'll be observed for a long time. So if I get the tank in June and it's completely done, set up, Ace and, and Esther, the female wood frog, move into it, I'll still have the males and they're going to have to probably, I'd say, a six-month quarantine or more um, because I want to probably get two samples to make sure. Now, if they have the same parasites that Ace and Esther have, which it's very likely they will since they're all going to be from the same locations, like general area speaking, yeah. um, the the parasitic nematodes and stuff like that are something that I found that they're just going to have to live with. Like every year they're going to have to be treated for. So that's not necessarily as big of a fear. Um, just making sure there's no ranavirus or chytrid that gets in uh, because I actually like the, the green and golden bell frogs are super sensitive to chytrid and they've actually lost 80% of the population in the wild from chytrid. So it's like if it was here right now because of my wild animals, those bell frogs would be dead because you just can't stop chytrid, um, at least in, in captivity if it gets in. So it's very hard to get it out and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> so I just have to make sure that nobody has that and get them tested for things. And it's going to be a lot of money, but uh, to get them off the ground and healthy and stuff like that, you know, for me, it's worth it because of what they bring to me. They bring a lot of joy and happiness. And um, there's a, a future plans potentially that I have for them too. But um, yeah, so it's it's a going to be a very serious uh, quarantine it'll be a little different than what these guys are in right now. It'd be more probably bare because I don't want to test them for parasites, give them the dewormer and then they poop and the parasites get into the soil and it's like, you can never get rid of it. So right. yeah, it's, it's going to be pretty intense. Probably they're not going to be happy. I'm going to be honest, probably for the first month or so, but um, you know, that's, I'm also going to be taking them hopefully out of a bad situation so, I mean, yeah that's that's yeah. the important part and i don't think i think you need a little bit of wild collection in the hobby in general because if not you're just breeding the same things all back to each other and and you're gonna hit you're gonna hit the wall eventually you know <clears throat> yeah and seeing and breeding depression and and that sort of thing yeah now I didn't get into what I'm doing now. Um, actually, in the state of Pennsylvania, unless you get a business permit, I, I think it's illegal to breed the native species. Um, what I've always opened the door up for and said I'd love to be a part of is um, if I can reproduce them for translocation, which means the state can take their eggs and put them in vernal pools to see how they would do if they would survive. Now, they have to go through a lot of checks and balances to get there, but in a way yeah you know if i can if i can accomplish that as something in the future um you know that these guys in captivity their offspring are going into the wild and they're helping to repopulate even model species i mean that's that's one amazing goal that i would love to say i accomplished someday well i feel like there's less of a biosecurity risk too with uh with releasing eggs instead of releasing babies um because yeah. you could have something in your collection and release it out to the wild you know just it could happen yeah exactly and so they they make you which is i understand like you have to go through all the proper protocols and stuff and i would never do it until we get to that point it's just you know i'm i'm very open to something like that um for a future 
you know, possibility of translocating some of their eggs. That would be super cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait for that video. Are you having goals set for you that you didn't think of? I mean, are they, are they asking you to do some things that weren't on your docket, so to speak? (laughs) I think everything, everything that I'm in right now is just so, uh, it just wasn't planned. None of this had like, you know, if we start even back at the beginning over an hour ago, like what I said, I had no interest or no idea that I was going to be out here, you know, going in the middle of the road, catching frogs, and then maybe having a newspaper article come out or, you know, starting a nonprofit to, to help care for these animals. I just, I never really thought I didn't set any expectations for that, even whenever I started. So like, I still don't necessarily have those types of, I'm not saying I don't have any, but I'm just saying that uh, I tend not to put certain stresses on myself or put certain, like certain pressures on myself. I, I tend to let things kind of uh, manifest and, and kind of deal with it as it happens. Like I said, I mean, whatever I had to do to be able to take better care of ACE led to a lot of this stuff happening. So it's like, if I've got to go to grad school, you know, if I'm going to help the other populations of American toads um, and start a nonprofit, or if I'm going to film American toads and try and do it the right way, not disrespecting everybody that's done it, but there's a lot of bad care and a lot of bad videos featuring American toads on YouTube. Well, if I'm going to take it seriously on YouTube, you know, there's just things that um, I've had the opportunity to, to just kind of, have the, uh, the chance to work with or to do. And so I've just looked at it like, okay, I have the chance to do this and this is going to further what I'm trying to accomplish. And so that's the kind of the way I go into it. Nice. I'm a big yeah, fan I'm of rolling right. with the punches as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That rolling with the punches. That's, uh, that's kind of a whole game fish and parks thing because, you know, things come up that, you know, whether it be habitat loss, um, uh, disease, poaching, you know, it's, that, that's kind of what I learned. You know, it's not just science, it's uh, people's management is what we'd always say. You know, now that I've become a citizen scientist, it's, it's to convince those people not to kill turtles for sport. You know, it's, uh, that's the hardest thing for me to encounter. You know, that people who specifically swerve to hit turtles and snakes and toads on the road just because it's like a video game to them. It's like, how do you change that mindset? Um, I, I don't know. Have you tried to do that or just, you know, you feel like educating them young, they'll appreciate it and they won't grow into those type of persons. How are you dealing with that? Um, <laughs> <Happy sigh. laughs> yeah. I think that there's a combination. I'm not, I'm not technically targeting the youth. That's just something that seems to have come to like the outreach events. But my focus is more of the age group that I'm a part of. So like high school and college students and in age group, even adults, even into their thirties. So I'd say having a strong, uh, a strong part in the community like if you're if you're involved in the community 
and you're doing stuff and people get a chance to see you doing it, you know, and you're open and you're transparent about it, that interests people. That makes people want to see what you're doing. And then uh, actually having conversations with people or, you know, whether it be working. I mean, I still work. I still have a nine to five type job going through grad school and the nonprofit and all this other stuff. So, I mean, even the jobs that I've had, there might, there might be people that hate frogs or don't care at all about frogs, but because they get a chance to see you and see what you're doing with them, they appreciate them or they might feel differently about them. And that's part of the outreach events. Why I started them too. A frog walk is something for everybody. You can learn something new every time you go, even for me, who's guiding the hike. So I look at it as an opportunity to impact the people at least in a region, you know, that's why I target central and Western Pennsylvania. And I guess for lack of a better example, you know, you think about how Batman has Gotham city and how he focuses all of his efforts on Gotham city. You know, if you're in central or Western Pennsylvania, you might see in the middle of the night, a random guy with a headlight, get out, run in the middle of the street, pick something up and run back in his car. <laughs> uh, you know, you might hear me talking to the frog or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but if that's, you know, if, you, if you're if you doing all you can, if you're running as hard as you can in a certain specific, like, focused area, then there's a lot that you can accomplish. And so sometimes I think, and it's a right way of thinking that we need to take on the world, uh, maybe first starting with a region or with with our community at home is the top answer for how we're going to combat uh, suburban habitats declining, you know, and people running them over and stuff like that. Because if they see you out in the community doing stuff, then there, there'll be a big difference. I think that's why the nonprofit is so essential to what I'm doing because you, you don't necessarily see a media brand, but you do see the work that a nonprofit's doing. So uh, it's just really cool to have, the opportunity to do both, you know, to, to actually be the hands in a way of conservation and then to have a mouthpiece of, of the media brand to showcase that. I'm just the type of guy who's going to find whoever it is on Facebook and, and it's not even necessarily targeted. It's, it's genuine. And I'll be like, Hey, you want to come to a frog walk? Like you want to, you want to go with us on a hike? And actually there are a few uh, politicians in my area that have gone, that have done it and they actually support what I'm doing. But whether I agree with them politically or not yeah. but just imagine, you know, if I start uh, talking to senators or if I start talking to the governor, I mean, I'm not trying to like put that out there, but no, if Josh Shapiro or anybody wanted to go on a frog walk, I would be, I'd be down for, for showing them, you know, what I can. And, and it's more so the way I look at it is cause I, I tend to try to stay out of the, uh, the political, arena and my brother is actually a politician but um he's he's more of a political consultant but um i i took on the approach to genuinely try and just befriend somebody and if you can actually show them that they matter that you know you're not trying to push an agenda like hey i'll come and see whatever you want you want to come and see a frog walk or do you want to come and see whatever a millipede roundup i mean i got a county commissioner to come out and see millipedes that's nuts that like, <laughs> <laughs> but you know but 
I think that the only reason why that kind of stuff works is because the intentionality is there of like, man, like even with the state, like for the permit, it's like, no, let's, let's actually accomplish something. Let's do something together. Um, it, It doesn't have to be us versus them. It could be, you know, us together. Like let's, let's try and see if we can unite people of different parties. Um, Animals aren't political, man. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, but Hey, but that's the perfect talking point to get your foot in the door because no matter what political party you are, everybody has seen something of Steve Irwin or everybody has seen something from animal planet at least once, like they've showed their kids even. And if you start approaching them with that kind of mindset, they want to see that stuff for themselves or they want to see that stuff continue. And if you start opening a case that, Hey, like we have significant things in our state that starts to get their attention and they're like, Oh, I'd like to see that. And so that, I don't know, that's just the, the perspective I have is um, I, I haven't really had to lobby anybody um, right now, at least, but I have had to have some persuasive conversations, not with, not with the County commissioner, but with like the game commission a little bit. Um, but even so, like even with the game commission, fish and boat, DCNR, um, FAA, because I also have a drone license, like I'm more than happy to actually talk with places and, and try and get them to come. And it seems like that intentionality has gone a long way with, uh, with a lot of the folks in the political arena or in some type of government position. Do you, do you think that if, if the leopard frog was from Africa, people would care more about it? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> if it was from South America, I think they would. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a beautiful frog. Like it's, it's amazing. It's gorgeous. Yeah. We we have them here. Like they're they're beautiful, but mm-hmm. no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm trying to get people to care. Yeah. Now we can't get we can't list it as a target species because technically I haven't found it close enough to actually take it to the board and say, hey, like. This should, this should be an animal that we jump on. Um, the way it works is it has to go through a vote and it has to be an animal that we have access to, to be able to help, to, whether it be main, maintaining it, managing it, whatever you want to say. Um, but we haven't found it. So that's a part of like why I'm so persistent in trying to find things that either haven't been found in locations or haven't found, haven't been seen in a long time. So, so then we can add it to the list. Uh, yeah I, I just saw a show that's like extinct or alive and the dude goes out and he like tries to find things that are either regionally extinct or you know haven't been seen in 30 40 years and he does he does find them yeah forrest galante oh it's funny that you bring that up i got a friend who uh he's actually working with him in some way in, in some extent or form yeah uh He's gonna. He's actually a, a part of their YouTube channel. He was on the podcast. Uh, at, he's a he's a host with me for our show uh, for the CCH podcast. But um, yeah, it's kind of funny. He he's like the national international type guy. He's going and looking for that kind of stuff. Where I'm more, like I said, specific. Like it might not be as fun to watch, but I'm going and trying to find. And maybe that'll change. Maybe <laughs> I'll find everything that I think I can find in the state and I move on, but, um, we need more of that anyway. 
yeah. you need people to care more about the local environment around them as compared to Africa or South America or Asia or Australia. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that our um, our game and fish have, have hired non-game biologists. In other words, uh, the animals that you know people aren't buying licenses to kill, and they're they're you know they want to do the spend the money to do the census scene to find out what these populations are doing. Like, do we indeed still have the Blandings turtle? in that southeast corner of the state or is it now gone and and then and also our our, our high plains um you know ornate box turtle it, it's really great that they have this herpetologist and do you um have guest people come in Aaron, to to help you know help you find species or target you know things like that well I guess there's two ways I could answer this. The first thing is the technology is a big factor in a lot of these things. So um, like I invested in the drone and I'm going to use that drone to get aerial photography and imagery of habitat and to understand the habitat. And that even goes further with what I'm talking about for the database, because then I can keep tabs every year of how it's changing. You know, is it increasing? Is it getting worse? Are we losing habitat? Um, but also trail cameras you wouldn't think that you can catch frogs on trail cameras but you can wow. and uh if you set it for audio like video um you can actually get them calling there's things that are used in like for avian practice more like uh for birds for recording their audio but you can also repurpose them for frogs and toads now that's a lot more money because you have to buy in bulk but down the road, that's something that I'd like to get. They're almost like audio recorders that are waterproof that you can set out and um, they're software you can use to to basically gear it towards what you're trying to find to give yourself the best chance. Um, but aside from that, I mean, Bluetooth speakers, um, that's actually one of the ways I got the Eastern Gray Tree Frog to respond back to me and I found it in Somerset County was I said an audio, I had a Bluetooth speaker, I set it down because I, I was trying to look through this brush and couldn't find it for about an hour. And then the frog actually went over to the Bluetooth speaker and started to call next to it. And it's like, well, there it is, you know? Um, but those are the types of things that uh, people don't understand or they don't appreciate as much. And in the way the field is starting to turn, you got to be very tech savvy to understand what's coming because um, like GIS and drones and, um, all this technical stuff is, is just as important as actually being out in the field. So that's probably the first thing is I'm in school right now trying to get a, a handle on this stuff. But then uh, to answer your question about guests, so I don't really have people come in to help me find anything. This is going to be the first year for the project for Frog Week that I'm going to have people that I take out. It's more ironically it's more like shark week where they have their guys their biologists and stuff and they're taking the celebrities out well in a form or in a way that's sort of what i'm doing i'll, I'll take out like guys who are in the media in in my area like a newspaper reporter or a tv host like that guy i was talking about who works with forrest galante he's going to come up to pennsylvania actually next week and he's going to film and that's going to be a part of their show for their youtube channel wow. Um, so I, I have guys who are coming in that are going to help or they're going to 
be a part of it in one way or another, but it's still my project that I'm, I'm leading. But I mean, I'd always be excited to have others pitch in and help. And if somebody knows where something is, or, you know, if they're more um, educated on something, I'd love to have them on as a part of it. Um, I'm never the type of person who's like, it's all about me. Like it's all mine. Like I love to try and, and include people. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you get calls like um, from other um, biologists that will, would ask you, uh, you know, we hear this species, we haven't been able to find it. Can you come and help us locate it? Do, uh, do you get calls like that? I haven't had anything like that. Um, the way the state works, there's, uh, I guess I'll be very, <laughs> I don't want to say I'll be very careful, but I'll tread lightly on this. So we have a lot of people who are very educated out there and everybody, especially because we had that state amphibian and reptile survey going on, everybody has contributed. And actually a lot of people have had some significant findings. Um, but what I'm doing is more of a voluntarily, uh, voluntary type project where I'm like, no, I'll go out and I'll, I'll like search for these things. I'll do it in a way on my own without the consent of whoever, like the, the state or the guys who are doing the survey, like, I'll just go out and, and I want to do this. Um, I haven't been contacted because I think that there's a lot of, uh, th- so like it's Mac hack, I guess is, is the best way to describe it. So there it's a acronym for like mid Atlantic conservation. Uh, I don't know all of it. I just know that basically it's a, it's a herpetological group that is contracted out by the state of Pennsylvania and other states and they go and and they do surveys and they do all these other things. So they kind of have, uh, I don't want to say a monopoly, but if you know what I mean, like they kind of have the major say in what happens around the state, like it kind of goes through them. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple other players like, uh, in my state, like the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy, Carnegie museum, like they have their things. Um, so what I'm doing is kind of independent, more so to speak is like I'm an independent person trying to to create a brand or to put something on the map um, who's willing to work with these places it's just that uh, because they exist there is no like contracting available I guess okay I I get that yeah I'm I'm kind of an ad hoc existence um, person you know on this too it's just Basically, yeah, I'll take them in if I have the room and the space. If not, I'll see if I can find someone else to foster this injured animal, you know, kind of thing. Um, I'm, I'm not an official anything, but I, I work with the current officials. I mean, I used to work for game fishing parks, but um, it. Uh, yeah, what uh, you guys are doing is very similar in that it's just you guys doing it. Um, like no managing body above you you know it's your choice to go collect turtles peggy you have to report things and you have to follow rules and regulations but if you didn't want to do that you just don't have to you know just like aaron you know if he didn't want to do frog week then frog week wouldn't exist and we'd go to less people caring about frogs so which isn't what he wants (laughs) yeah yeah exactly well yeah i mean i i want to get out in the field i miss getting out in the field um uh 
you know, being, you know, in my studio all the time, you know, that that's not healthy, you know, <laughs> um, you know, sitting in a chair and painting or sculpting. It's like, I, you know, that's, I think that's why I have dogs to like, okay, you know, come on, mom, we're going for a hike. <laughs> I think know? we're all starting to experience a little bit of like cabin fever too, because it has just <laughs> been the worst winter here. Yeah. Absolutely yeah, the good. worst winter that I have seen anyway. Um, well, do you have any more questions, Peggy? Um, I'm sure you got a ton more and we could do a whole nother episode. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I do too. You actually, (laughs) Matt, you actually didn't explain, uh, you said you have an interest in snakes, but I really didn't hear anything about like what you do as well. Oh, yeah. Um, I just, (laughs) man, I used to keep snakes. I got out of the hobby. I bred leopard geckos and bred a few things here and there and now i'm getting back in it started with a pet cobalt python actually it started with two of them um and that wasn't my decision as much as it was hers she kind of saw a ball python i'm like yeah let's get it whatever one snake that means more snakes so (laughs) that's kind of how that went you know and now we're here and now Um, you're getting because i wanted to do this before and i never did i wanted to yeah. do youtube before there's an old youtube of mine somewhere out there <laughs> um, and now he wants to get a gator and a sulcata tur- tortoise i to do put want a gator. gator not the tortoise <laughs> you can keep the tortoise i'll take a crocodilian though it could even be a dwarf caiman not necessarily a gator i don't care if it's something small would be good. i don't care if it's mad and mean and hates me I just, I I don't want it to be my dog. (laughs) I want it to be an alligator, you know? That's the way to put it, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And you can can keep them that way, and you can, you know, you can train an alligator like a dog. And I think you should, because that's helping your bonding. But at the same time, if it's mean and cranky, then, I mean, it's mean and cranky. So, Aaron, if you could keep anything extinct not extinct no size no space requirements but you have to breed it you have to produce it what would you keep oh it's a really long silence this is good (laughs) (laughs) i mean it could just be illegal to keep it could be Yeah, really anything. Bell frog, probably. The bell frog or the American toad. Okay. Really? I know that's probably so boring. No, (laughs) no. That's that's the first. I mean, well, I guess Phil did say that he felt bad for not saying his animals, um, which I think everybody does. But you're the first to actually say your animals. Or ones you keep. (laughs) So. Yeah, I. I want to, like, I'm just so invested into them. Um, if I were to get a bigger facility or something, I would, well, there'd be, a, there'd be a story for another time for what I would build. But what I could tell you is some of the things that I would keep would be like the pickerel frog, because that's another species that is a target, um, potentially the leopard frog. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't go overboard with it though, either, because I'd want to have bigger tanks if I have a bigger space. But yeah, I would, I would just want to, whatever I took in, whatever I actually have is what I'd want to 
also try and breed because you know if you if you're fantasizing about something else i mean it's almost like that would have your attention or it could have your attention more than what you own and so i'm very thankful for what i have and very appreciative of it and i don't take it for granted especially with like losing stuff i think you tend to gain more appreciation for like for what you have so like it's just been a crazy year for me but even if i didn't lose stuff i still would probably have said the same thing just you know i, I love what i have yeah i That's love that. how committed oh. and deep in it you are sorry peg <laughs> go for it <laughs> Yeah, beautiful answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, um, if you had any advice for uh for anyone who's getting their first pet, that uh, it, it can stay frog relevant if you want it to be. But if you had any keeping advice for a new keeper, what would it be? Please don't get a wild animal. Amen to that. <laughs> that would, <laughs> because, like, I have to spend a lot of, more money than I want to to keep it alive, to keep them alive. They just, most people don't respect them because they get, they keep them, you know, I, I'm not going to shy away from it, but even if you look at the snake discovery episodes about gray tree frogs and toads, my gray tree frogs have a 100-gallon exoterra terrarium. Like, my American toads have a 67 gallon, the two of them out in the hallway. And like, I'm going to have two of them in my room, of course, with like two wood frogs, but 200 plus gallons. And it's like, I just think that we uh, look at them as like second class in terms of whatever we could own or whatever you could get as a pet. Like a lot of people that you see in the hobby, you know, they keep a lot of pets and it's like, not all of their pets are, are treated equally. And even you, you could say that about mine too, because certain ones have bigger tanks than others, but at least from the standpoint that I'm coming from, nothing is smaller than three feet long. And these are animals that have an entire forest at their playground. Like female gray tree frogs might travel two miles and they're a very small frog and we want to put them in a 10 gallon. And like, I just really advocate not to get them because not only is it like thousands to take care of them, hundreds to feed them, hundreds to house them. But then, you know, there's just so many other things that could happen outside of our control with disease mm -hmm. and other things like that, that you just, you know, you're going to catch it at wherever it's at in life. So um, I just think that that's the biggest thing that I can say. And if you have them already, um, you can check out the Frog and Toad Facebook group that I'm the owner of and, uh, I have a video, you know, wild vivariums, the wild vivarium show. I'm teaching people how to take care of their animals. How to, how do you take care of a gray tree frog or an American toad? And, um, you know, if you're going to keep the animal, at least know where to get resources on how to take care of it would probably be the biggest two things. Yep. So don't, sure. don't yep. take wild and know where to get the information if you have it. Yeah. That's good. And that's what I, I tell people to do before you get the animal set up the correct habitat and then go get the animal. There's there's something to be said about like a, an animal that has never known any different than captivity. And until you know what an animal is like in captivity that's been in captivity and born there, then you probably shouldn't mess with the wild one. Mm 
Because it yeah. knows the taste of sweet freedom. <laughs> Not to talk to super bad, but yeah, no, two miles. You can't make an enclosure two miles by two miles. No way. You'll never find that frog. How could you enjoy yeah, it? No. You know, so it is a little bit selfish on our parts as humans, but that's why I, I do like how you preach your big enclosures. That's very important. I agree. Uh, space is important, especially for wild caught animals, I think, because they know what it's like to roam. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Aaron, where would we find you at? <laughs> at this Everywhere. point, just Google me and, <laughs> and things will come up. But that's, it's in a good way, though, because I've seen you Google somebody in like their uh, DUI stuff comes up now. <laughs> but uh, newspaper articles will come up for me. But uh, I would say... If you want to learn more about the conservation, if you want to learn about like the actual doing stuff in the environment, that would be the nonprofit that's PA Woods and Forests. And you can go to the website or the Facebook page. If you want to learn more about the stuff that I'm doing for the media brand, um, I kind of look at it like Netflix or Hulu, even though it's a small scale because I have a small channel. But, um, you know, I, I invest in talent and shows. So I have a hiking show. I have a podcast. I have um, a pet care show. And we're going to start gearing up for this 244 gallon documentary series featuring ACE. And we've also got our conservation projects, Frog Week and Conservation Week. So there's a lot of good content to check out, but that's Woods and Forests Media. Um, and that would be Instagram and the YouTube channel. So those would be the best things to get in touch with. And also the Frog and Toad Facebook group, because it's to connect. It was created to connect people that keep them, people that enjoy them, like uh, herpetologists, hobbyists, like anybody. It's for it's for anybody that likes frogs. If you like looking at pictures, it's for you. If you like doing hardcore research, it's for you. <laughs> if you keep frogs, it's for you. So uh, it's a very open style format for people, and you can share your content on there as well. But I th I'd say those would be the big three if you're trying either to get in touch with me or you want to follow what I'm doing. Excellent. Yeah, you have uh, amazing content, and it, it's really, I, I really enjoy it when I'm on my exercise cycle, and I can, you know, go from one, one of your spots to another, and it's, uh, it's great. <laughs> so thank you. Well, thank you. Hey, where, where, oh, where, thank can, you. where can they find you at? <laughs> what? Where can people find you at? Who, me? Yeah, you. Oh, me? Um, yeah. uh, uh, my, my artwork on Facebook, uh, Peggy on Detmers, um, and on Instagram, Detmers Studios. Um, so you'll see my artwork and my turtles and my other pets. And uh, it's kind of uh, my life. You know, more, a lot of people that, you know, they, they want to get to know the artists, you know, as, um, as well as if they appreciate your work. So it's um, when they see how much of a character I am. <laughs> Not only do they buy my work, but they invite me to dinner. <laughs> so, yeah, it's... I'm following you back as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And as for me and the podcast, it's uh, Herp Talk Radio on Instagram. Still no Facebook. Yep. Uh, email. That's a great way to get a hold of us. HerpTalkRadio at gmail.com. Um, we have YouTube. You could be watching this on YouTube right now. I don't even know. 
Aaron, we'd like to thank you for coming on, man. Yes. It's been awesome hearing about what you're doing. I'm super glad we got some conservation people on or a person on. You're our first yeah. and uh, you'll be back, I'm sure. So yeah. how could we set a, a time maybe to talk during Frog Week? I'd love to come back oh, and share yeah. with you what I found. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that gave me chills hearing that we would be um, privy to that. Yes, thank you. I'd love to come back on and talk to you guys for that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Anyway, as for the listeners, you guys have a good day, night, evening, whenever you're tuning in. Uh, We'll talk to you next week. Good night.